At this point in our service, uh, we come before God and pray. I want to lead us in prayer as per usual, although this morning will just be slightly different. And that the prayer this morning, um, I'm joyfully and openly plagiarizing from somebody who's been dead for over 200 years. Uh, We're going to pray this morning according to the guidelines of a Puritan prayer that's found in a work known as the Valley of Vision. It's a Christmas prayer. And the first part of it, uh, it's in two parts. The first half just reflects on the wonder and the power and the love and the wisdom of God as displayed in the fact that he came as a baby. And then the second part is a desire for God to take us to the manger scene, not just to see a sentimental scene, but to see there our own salvation. So would you join me as I pray? O source of all good, what shall we render to you for the gift of gifts? your own dear son. Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise us above, was born like us that we might become like him. Herein is love. When we cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise us to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, He united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. And here is wisdom. When we were undone, with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save us to the uttermost. As man to die our death, to shed satisfying blood on our behalf, and to work out a perfect righteousness for us. Dear God, take us in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge our minds. Let us hear good tidings of great joy, and on hearing, let us believe, rejoice, praise, and adore, our conscience being bathed in an ocean of repose, our eyes uplifted to a reconciled Father. Place us, dear God, with the ox, donkey, camel, and goat to look with them upon our Redeemer's face and in him to account ourselves delivered from sin. Let us with Simeon clasp the newborn child to our hearts, embrace him with undying faith, exulting that he is ours and we are his. For in him you have given us so much that heaven can give no more. And it is in gratitude and the glory of the name of Jesus Christ that we as your church pray these things. Amen. Please remain standing as we read our scripture for this morning. Our passage today is... Are we there? Here we are. <laughs> our passage today is from Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation." He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word to us today. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn it to the passage that you just heard read, Luke chapter 1, Mary's Song of Praise. Uh, Today's passage is a poem, really, of praise from Mary, uh, right after the angel had told her that she would miraculously conceive, give birth to, and mother the Savior of the world. It's right at the heart of the Christmas story and quite a remarkable experience that she writes this remarkable praise poem in response to. Uh, It's formally known as the Magnificat. Some of you may have heard of that term before. That's a Latin word that basically means magnification or glory. It it starts as she begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's, It's a poem of praise to God. And there's just a couple of quick maybe facts about this passage that will help us maybe get the most out of it this morning, the way that I think God intends us to at Christmas time and the reason that it's in the Bible. Uh, Just two quick points. First of all, it is uh, a poem that is modeled on Hannah's song of praise in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, in which a childless woman, uh, faithful to God, named Hannah, prayed that God would give her a child. He did miraculously allow her to conceive, and she uh, gave birth to a young man who grew up and became Samuel, one of the greatest prophets, that is, spokesman for God, and deliverers of his people. And this is, in turn, just the continuation of a motif that had happened all throughout the Bible. You go back to Judges chapter 12, and uh, a woman who isn't even named um, is, uh, asks God once again for the blessing of a son, and he miraculously allows her to conceive, and she births a young baby boy who grows up to be Samson, a man with whom God's spirit was mightily strong, and he delivered his people Israel. And all of this ultimately goes back to the very first woman who walked the earth when God promised that through Eve, one of her descendants would be a blessing to the world and would save his people. And so the point is that when we arrive in Luke chapter 1, the birth of Jesus is presented to us as the final culmination of this theme of miraculous conception of delivering young boys who will save their people sent from God. In other words, uh, Mary is another, Mary's experience is another and even greater Hannah experience. And Jesus is the true and greater Samson, the true and greater um, Samuel, the one who is without sin and who will save his people. He's not just a spokesman for God because he is God in human flesh. So there's a lot of depth already right from the the get-go of what Mary is saying. And if you go back and read 1 Samuel 2, you'll see a lot of very similar language and structure to what we see this morning. Now, the second thing to point out about it is simply that it is a poem. Um, I've already referred to it that way a couple of times. It's a poem, and you'll notice that even in most of your English Bibles, because it's indented differently. I mean, your Bibles probably look something like this one, mine. I've got all this like block text where there's just narrative. The Bible is describing what happened. And then when you get down to Mary's song, which uh, in my Bible starts up here in this column, it suddenly gets all indented differently. And that's the English Bible translator's way of trying to get our attention and draw us to the fact that, hey, this, this next few verses is kind of different. There's this deliberate poetic structure here that you would skip over or probably miss if they didn't sort of point it out. And the only reason that's important is that 
because Mary's poem of praise uses some well-known poetic structures, that really guides us in understanding what's being communicated here, and we'll see that as we go through. This is ultimately a theme of praise toward God in joy at Christmas time. And actually, that's the first thing we learn about uh, praise and joy at Christmas is that the two are intimately connected. In fact, they're inseparably, inseparably connected. And that's how Mary leads this song straight off or this poem straight off. Um, in verse 46 and 47, the first couple of verses at the very beginning, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, right away, there's some of that poetic structure going on because that's what's known as a couplet. It's two lines that go together, and they essentially restate this. The second line restates the same thing as the first line, just in different words, in order to help us kind of think about it and understand it a little bit differently. So when she begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, or I'm praising God, I'm giving God glory and honor from deep within my soul, Then the second line sort of elaborates on that a little bit. My spirit rejoices, that is, experiences joy in God, my Savior. And that very joy she is experiencing is the praise to God. They're the same thing. Joy is inseparably connected with the idea of praising or honoring God. This is an important point that um, Bible teachers have been making for generations in lots of creative ways. Probably the guy that's, that's connected joy and, and the worship of God most clearly in our generation and for our day and age uh, is a pastor named John Piper. Kind of his sort of life motto. Some of you have heard it. Um, it was the central thesis of his largest and best known book. And it's simply this. This is um, John Piper's way of rewording something theologians have always taught because the Bible is always taught. And it's simply this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The satisfaction, the joy experienced in God is the soul's praise to God. The the, the joy, the experience of joy is absolutely critical to God being rightly honored and worshiped and glorified by people. Now, I mean, it's true that God is glorified when he is um, acknowledged or praised with words, even if, you know, you're not, your heart isn't really in it. Th- that is a, a glory. It is a praise to him. Um, but he isn't most glorified that way. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a complete, um, it's, it's sort of a lesser sort of form of glory. I mean, it's, it's worth saying that, that dutiful praise, if I could use that term, is, is good. Like, it's, it's, it's right even if I'm, if I'm a Christian and I want to praise God and I'm just not, I'm not, you know, I'm just not feeling it right now, you know, I'm not feeling excited about God right now. It is true that he still deserves my praise, whether I feel it or not. And if I'm not feeling particularly joyful in God, it is still good and right to praise him anyway, because he deserves it. That is good. And it is right, but it isn't what you might say is mature or, or full or complete praise. It's, it's there, it, it exists, it's just somewhat sort of feeble, it's kind of weak, it's not vibrant and strong, it's kind of tepid, it's not burning hot the way it ought to be, it's sort of flat and two-dimensional, it's not full three-dimensional praise that God is worthy of, it's, it's grayscale, it's not full vibrant color, 
You see, because the mind acknowledging truths about God is necessary and good. In fact, you cannot rightly praise God without understanding right things about him because praise is a response to who he is. We've got to understand who he is to praise him rightly. Praise is never less than intellectual understanding, but it is so much more because we as people are so much more than just brains. Uh, We also have imaginations. We have emotions. We have feelings. And when God's infinite worth is beheld by a person at every level, like we understand it and we're excited about it all at the same time, when it's felt and experienced as well as understood, then the whole heart, the whole person responds to his infinite worth in a strong, blazing hot, three-dimensional, full, vibrant color praise. The joy is essential to the glory. In this poem of Mary's, they are one and the same. Her soul's rejoicing in God is the means by which she magnifies or praises him. In in the rest of what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see that Mary's mind is fully engaged. In fact, um, we'll see a little bit later in the poem just how clear-eyed this young Jewish peasant girl was about what was happening to her. It's, it's actually quite remarkable for a relatively uneducated, simple peasant girl. She was very up to date on what God was doing, and she understood fully the implications of her experience. We'll get there in a minute. So her mind is fully engaged, but her imagination, her ability to picture what's going on beyond her current circumstances was also fully engaged, as were her emotions, each part filling out and reinforcing the other so that her whole being is responding to God and that whole person experience of the truth and the beauty of God is called joy. So it's appropriate that we talk about joy a lot at Christmas time. You might say that simply this, um, praise is most full when joy is most deep. Praise is most full when joy is most strongly felt (laughs) because it's when the heart is engaged with joy for who God is, that is when he is glorified. That's the importance of joy. God is not rightly or fully or most appropriately, appropriately praised until the heart has experienced joy and delight and satisfaction in him. So then why is she joyful? Which is what the rest of the poem is about. The reasons for her joy, and as we go through this poem in the next few minutes together, we're going to see at least three things that you learn about experiencing joy in God because of Christmas, because God became man. Things that will help us attain it if we don't have it, hold on to it if we've lost it, or even fight for it if necessary. And the three things we learn about joy, just briefly, I'll say what they are, and then we'll walk through them and see them from the passage, are the idea that joy comes from who God is and what he has done. That's the first point. God is always the initiator and we are always the responders. If you really want joy in God, you've got to be responding to who he is and what he's done. Secondly, joy must be received, which is harder work sometimes than it sounds like. We'll get there in a moment. And then lastly, joy is always connected to the bigger picture beyond the individual. And that's when it reaches its fullest expression. So joy comes from who God is and what he's done. Joy must be received. And joy is always connected to the bigger picture. Let's follow Mary as her praise poem walks us through Uh, these three points. She begins by saying, my my soul magnifies God and and my spirit rejoices in him. That is the praise. And then she gives the reason why in verses 48 and 49. For, here's the reason, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things. 
for me. Mary's joy emerges as a response to God's initiative, his step toward her, and his choosing her for a blessed experience of carrying to term the Savior of the world. The fact that that God singled her out for a place of privilege that she did not deserve, and she knows that full well, that is what produced joy in her, because that's what generosity does. When, or, or grace does. That's when we're treated far better than we deserve to be. When you've experienced that, like it, it can't help but naturally um, unleash joy from, from the heart. It's when I don't think that I've been treated any differently than I deserve. It's when I think I'm getting exactly what I've earned that joy is far more muted. On just a very personal and very, very simplistic level, what came to mind as I was thinking about this this past week was an encounter and uh, interaction that my wife and I had with a friend of ours about 20, gosh, this must have been 23 years ago now. Uh, Amy and I had gotten married, we moved to Portland, and we were still in contact with some friends from California where we were from, um, just kind of periodic updates, but you know, we weren't regularly involved in their lives day to day because we're living in Oregon now. And one particular lady, um, I almost called her young lady, she was young back then, so were we. Anyway, uh, she was a young lady at the time <laughs> who was a friend of ours. Um, she, out of the blue one day, so Amy and I both had, you know, jobs, and I was in graduate school, and we we're just trying to make ends meet, like, you know, young, poor, graduate student, married couples, and we had both quit our existing jobs and gotten new ones, and so there was this, like, lag period between, like, our last paycheck from the old jobs and when we were going to get paid in the first for the new jobs, and there's a few weeks that things are really, really tight, and right at the beginning of that period, we received a letter in the mail, because people used to do that before we texted each other. It was crazy. Um, we received a letter in the mail, handwritten from this friend in California, and she said, man, basically wrote this letter, we open it up, and here's this card, and out of the card falls a check for a couple hundred bucks made out to us. And we're like, what is this? And she says, in essence, I, I don't know, I was just thinking about you guys, love you guys, and just as I was praying for you guys recently, I just felt like God put you on my heart. I don't know if you need this, I don't know if it helps, but I just felt moved, so here's a little money, hope it helps. She had no idea that we had just quit jobs and gotten new ones. She had no idea that things were a little bit tight. She's just like, whatever, God just put you on my heart. I just want to give you some money. I'm like, we're, I'm staring at this check and I'm staring at my wife and we're both like, this is crazy. I mean, we know Joyce, our friend, we love her, but like, this is totally unexpected. You don't owe us any money. We, I almost felt bad taking it. It was like, but it was a gift. And so we received it and we thanked her for it. A couple of weeks later, I got my first paycheck from my new job. And when I put it in the bank, uh, there was less than $70 left in her checking account. And it was only then that I realized her couple hundred bucks had bridged the gap for us in a way that we didn't even know at the time, and she had absolutely no way of knowing. And the point of that is simply this. That was a simple, small, one-time thing. But the way it's made me think about our friend has always changed. I always loved her, always appreciated her, but man, I mean, and, and we're only very rarely in contact with her these days, just connect on Facebook or something here and there, but like if she, and she still lives in California, but if she were to walk up today, it would just be like, ah, you know, big hug, it's so good to see you. The joy just wells up from your heart at seeing that person. Why? Because she expressed a generous love we didn't deserve. That's what, that's what grace does. It causes joy. Joy is a response to the initiating grace of God. That was Mary's experience. Her joy welled up in her heart and overflowed with praise because God had bestowed honor upon her that was totally undeserved and unexpected and it just blew her away. And if you're not blown away, you're not experiencing joy. And if you're not experiencing joy, you're not worshiping fully because it's all a response to God and his initiative. 
But here's the, here's the thing I want us to see, maybe even more so. It's not only where her joy came from, it's that this isn't just something that's true of Mary. It would be very easy to read verses 48 and 49 as something unique to Mary that we don't see in and of ourselves. After all, she says at the second half of verse 48, Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Um, something that certain church denominations tend to take a little bit too far. I think all she's simply saying there is, I'm having this unique experience of bearing the Christ child and nobody else is going to get to do that. I mean, what an amazing... She's, just, she's in awe over the blessing. And she's like, everybody's going to call me blessed because of my unique role in God's redemptive plan. And then verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And it would be really easy to read Mary's story and say, well, good for her. That doesn't, like, I can't connect to that (laughs) in any way. I mean, that's not going to be my experience. But Mary won't actually let us read her poem of praise that way. Read verse 50. She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You know what she's saying there? This is not just about me and my experience. The mercy of God is treating me better than I deserve. That has produced so much joy in my heart. Isn't just for me. It's for everybody who fears God, all generations, all times. This is who God is. This is how he treats not just me, but the whole human race. You see, I think when we read this passage, it's easy to um, see Mary as somebody who's totally unrelatable because we're just never going to have that kind of experience, right? Even amongst us low church types that don't really venerate Mary like some of our high church brethren do, um, and we're not really in danger of like honoring her too much, uh, we just understand she was a faithful lady who, who played God's role for her um, in her time. And yet even then, I think it's easy to look at her and say, yeah, but that's not going to be my experience. I mean, after all, we're talking about a miraculous conception of a child. Okay, that rules half the human race out right there. I mean, us guys are looking at it going, well, that's never going to happen to me, right? I'm never going to carry any child. And, and even for many Christian women I've talked to, especially even if you've had the experience of conceiving a child and bearing a child and birthing a child, you're like, well, maybe I, I can relate loosely to the idea of being a mother, and there's a certain miraculous joy in that. But, I mean, let's face it, there was only one Jesus, right? And he probably wasn't your kid. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love my children, don't get me wrong, but nobody's going to mistake them for the God of the universe, right? It's just, nobody's had an experience like that. That's not, we don't see ourselves in her experience. And so it can be easy to say, well, so then her, her praise thing is not really for us. Like, I'm glad it's in the Bible, it's part of the Christmas story. I read it, I appreciate it, but I can't really relate to it. I think that would be a fairly normal reaction to it. But she won't let us read it this way. Because... While we may not be in the same position as her, because the details of God's call in each person's life are different. Nevertheless, the Bible presents Mary's blessed experience as not not as a totally unique experience only for her, even though the calling to bear the Christ child was clearly unique to her. But the Bible presents her experience of blessing and joy as the unique expression of a larger story of God's mercy, which is for everyone. So this is God's mercy to all those who fear him from generation to generation. So this can be our song too. If we fear God. Notice there's one conditional statement there, isn't there? God's mercy is for everybody from generation to generation who fear him. So what does that mean? That leads us to our second point. 
First, joy comes from who God is. It's a response to who he is and what he has done. Understanding that, engaging that with the mind and the imagination and the emotions and letting that well up in praise to him. That's where joy is found. But it's only for those who fear God. So that leads us to the second point. Joy must be received. Joy must be received, which sounds more passive than it actually is. Verses 51 to 53. He has shown strength, she goes on with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. This is, these verses are really a, a poetic unpacking of what does it mean to be somebody who fears the Lord and therefore can receive his mercy, find great joy in him, and ultimately praise and honor God rightly. What does it mean to fear God? Well, once again, recognizing that this is a poem helps understand it. Um, the Bible scholars would call this sort of a chiastic poetic structure where you got four statements, and it's like an A, B, B, A thing. The first and the fourth statement are parallel, and the second and the third statement are parallel. It's just a creative way of arranging the material to engage the mind and get us to think about it a little bit differently. The first statement is in 51 and 52, this idea that God takes proud people and knocks them off their high horse. That's basically what she says. He has shown great strength with his arm by scattering those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he's brought down the mighty ones from their thrones. But then you get the opposite. He took the mighty and he brought them low, but then he takes the low and he delights to bring them up. And that gives us an important understanding of what it means to be somebody who fears God. Am I mighty? Or as it's put in verse uh, 51, am I proud in the thoughts of my heart? Or am I lowly and humble, understanding I bring nothing to the table before God? And I get that. And then the second couplet goes along with it in verse 52. He has, um, or sorry, verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. The imagery shifts a little bit from power to poverty. Um, now there's this idea of people who are hungry and needing to be filled. And she says, God fills them with good things. But the rich who already have everything, he gives nothing. He sends them away empty-handed. It's just a reverse parallel of the same idea. God takes the self-sufficient and he is opposed to them. He, he's against them. And he takes the humble and the broken and he says, I will give you everything. That's what it means to fear God. The upshot is that God's mercy is available to everyone, but not everyone actually experiences it. And the difference between those who do and those who don't is what the Bible would call pride. Or what's described here in verse 51 is those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Proud means self-reliant. Uh, people who don't really feel like they need anything. Even if they would never say that, there's the sense that like I've got it together and I'm a pretty good person and I'm okay. I could always use a little bit more. <laughs> but I'm basically okay. And of course, God should love me and honor me because I'm far from perfect, but I'm a lot better than them, whoever them is in our minds. Proud people are those who don't feel like they really need anything. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 puts this so succinctly in a non-poetic fashion, but it makes the exact same point. It says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That, that's what Mary's praise song is saying. 
God is opposed to the proud, to those that don't think they ultimately need as much saving as the next person because I work hard and and I do good things and I whatever. God says, you're not going to get anything from me if that's where you're at. Oh, I would never say that. It's like, I don't care what you say. I'm interested in what are the thoughts deep down inside your heart. Do you really think you've got it all together? And if your basic attitude toward yourself is, I'm far from perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. Of course God should bless me. He says, make no mistake. I'm against that. But when you're like Mary and there's this humility that says, I'm a nobody, I've got nothing, and God treated me so much better than I deserve, that's where joy comes from. You see, pride kills joy, and it's pretty obvious why when you think about it, right? It's impossible to feel excited about being treated better than I deserve if I don't think I have been. Right? I mean, if I basically earned it, or at least most of it, then I don't really feel joy. I mean, I may be, I may, I may be, may be happy on payday because I'm getting what I deserved and I worked hard for that and I want it, but I don't get that kind of joy that comes from God treating me better than I deserve because I don't think I've been treated better than I deserve. And so a proud person is incapable of experiencing true gospel joy. Utterly incapable. Pride drives out your ability to experience joy totally neuters your capacity to experience gospel joy because gospel joy is dependent upon God treating us far better than we deserve. And when we see that and know it and feel it, the heart will respond with joy. Look at Mary's example of humbly receiving God's generosity toward her just in the previous passage. Uh, in the run-up to this, uh, if, you, if you're in Luke chapter 1, just uh, skip back with your eyes to verse 28. This is her response to the angel initially coming to her. And the angel comes to her and says, verse 28, Luke chapter 1, Greetings, O favored, what favored one? The Lord is with you. Now look at Mary's response in verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Friends, don't miss the language. What the Bible is calling out is she was not greatly troubled by the fact that an angel just popped out of nowhere and talked to her. Although I'm sure that kind of freaked her out. I would imagine it did. That was not normal. And she may have had a period of shock to recover. I don't know. But that's not what's in the Bible. Like it probably happened. But that's not what the scripture is calling our attention to. Her perplexity was over what the angel said. And what he said was he called her a favored one. God is with you. And she's like, me? Why? And she's confused. She's so humble. She can't imagine why God would favor her over anybody else. Like, I imagine the angel shows up and says, greetings, favored one. And Mary's like, you know, she's looking over her shoulder for like, who are you talking to? You must be talking about somebody else. There's nobody else in the room. And she's like, he's talking to me. And she, I, uh, me, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm a nobody. That base humility says, I don't deserve anything from God. Who am I that God would be gracious to me? That's the opposite of the proud person. That's somebody who fears God. Verse 38, as the angel tells her what's going to happen, you're going to supernaturally conceive a child uh, before there are even normal human relations and that child is going to be the savior of the world and and she's just trying to wrap her mind around whoa i've never heard of anything like this but she says in verse 38 mary said behold i am the servant of the lord let it be to me according to your word when god promises a miracle she accepts it like she she's like oh may that be true it's too good to imagine i can't even intellectually imagine what that would mean because that's a supernatural miracle. I can't wrap my mind around that and I can't emotionally get over the fact that you're favoring me when I don't deserve to be favored. I don't get any of this, but oh, please let it be true. 
And so she clings to it. You see, that's, that's receiving God's gift. It's actually active. It takes a lot of energy. But she is desperately pouring herself into, oh, may that be true. And she accepts it. And then lastly, if you drop down to verse 45, the verse right before our passage, when she visits Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth pronounces a blessing over her, and in verse 45, she ends it by saying, blessed, referring to Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You see this pattern of a lady who just says, I'm nothing, and I can't believe God would be this generous to me, but I am putting everything on that. Oh, may it be true. And her heart wells up with joy as a response. Mary models a basic disposition of knowing I deserve nothing from God, but clinging to his promises as if my very life depends on it because, friends, it does. It does. Your very life depends on the promises of God. Do I see that and cling to them mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in every way? Receiving joy means humbly holding on to God's promises for dear life. That's what it means to receive God's promises. Joy must be received, and that's especially hard at times. It's always work. Like it's, it's never easy. Receiving, the word receiving sounds passive in, in modern English, but it's not. There's this active reaching out and trusting that always requires work. So it's always hard, but sometimes it's harder than others particularly for when we're in moments of pain and for those of us who right now are in moments of great pain and frustration in life, um, you may be entering the Christmas season without a whole lot of joy in your recent memory. I mean, even if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you, you know who the baby in the manger was and you've trusted him for your eternal salvation. But life comes, and it is hard, and it is painful, and sometimes it is relentless, and it just doesn't give up, and it wears us out. I couldn't help but think in prepping this passage this morning for how much pain exists in our church family right now, because there's a lot, maybe more than normal. I don't know if that's just like we're all thinking about it more than normal because it's Christmas. I don't think so, though. I think some pains and, and tragedies kind of come in waves and our church family is sort of at the crest of, I hope it's the crest of a wave right now. So many of our, our members just recently have had very, very close loved ones die. It's hard for me to say that because I'm seeing some of your faces right now. I'm just imagining, like, what is, what is Christmas like this year? It's going to be different. It's going to be different. There's a fight for Christmas joy. It's not just there when there's the pain of loss. Chronic illnesses taking a long-term toll, past or present even abuses that have marked us. And a lot of this stuff just kind of comes up at Christmas time. You know, memories of what was and no longer is, a broken family, a destroyed relationship. And all of this stuff kind of just gets accentuated at Christmas time. And then it's like, turn on the lights, joy, joy, joy. And we're like, really? <laughs> Some people love Christmas. Some people hate it. Whatever its source, pain screams, look at me! You know? It's like just when I'm finally like, I want to get on and enjoy some of God's other blessings. Oh, and then there's the pain and the grief and it just grabs your mental attention and says, no, look at me, I'm down here in the pit and how dare you, brain, get out of the pit, come down here with me and just dwell there. It just like sucks you in like quicksand. And it gnaws at the soul. 
such that the promise of Christmas joy can sound at best empty and hopeless. Or maybe at worst, it sounds like a sick joke. But I'm a Christian. I mean, it doesn't seem right to despair. I know better than this. I know my loved one's in a better place. I know that that God will bring ultimate healing someday. Why isn't that enough for me right now? Sometimes we feel like failures if we understand the truth about Jesus' birth, but pain is preventing us from experiencing it as joy. But we're not failures. It just means that joy has to be received. And sometimes receiving is harder work than normal. Sometimes it's a downright fight. And you may find yourself this Christmas season locked in a mortal battle for joy. And if I could do nothing other than this morning, blow wind in your sails to keep up the fight, we will have done something worthwhile. Because it's worth fighting for. And the Bible provides rich resources for this fight. Let me just consider in the time we have a couple of dozens of examples we can give. Psalm chapter 42, which we actually began our Advent season looking at in our family gathering. If you want to keep a finger in Luke chapter 1, we'll be back there in a moment, and turn to Psalm 42. I would encourage you to do that. Actually, Psalm 42 and 43 go together. They're all originally one song. Let me just read the first few verses of this, and you'll see the validation of the struggle of how pain impacts a faithful person who's desperately clinging to God. This is King David writing, As a deer pants, starting in verse 1, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is not sentimentality. This is the cry of a desperate man. And he tells us why in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. What a tragic almost hauntingly beautiful, poetic way of expressing grief. I'm wanting joy, and I'm not finding it every day and night. It's just the grief, and I'm longing to be with God's presence again while they continue to say to me, where is your God? And then he remembers joy in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. He's like, I remember what it was like to be excited about God's generosity to me and because of the pain in my life, I'm not feeling it. Now, God, can I get back to this place? And he's trying and he's not making it. But he keeps fighting. Verse five, he preaches the truth to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And it goes on and on. You see here the validation of the struggle for joy. The feeling of God being far away when we're in pain. And the fight for perspective and pleading with God for the strength to continue to believe that he is good when my pain means that I don't feel it. And the insistence of saying, I'm not going to let my soul get pulled down into the mire, but I'm going to try to pull my soul up by anchoring myself to the truth. And that is a fight. That is a fight. If you feel like God is distant in your pain, just one more. Psalm 56, flip over a couple of pages. In verse 8. Another hauntingly poetic and beautiful description of a fight for joy. Psalm 56, 8 says, again speaking to God, You have kept count of my tossings, my turmoils, and you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all in your book? You feel like God is distant in the midst of your pain. So do the biblical authors. 
But this hauntingly beautiful image conveys this powerful truth. God is there whether I feel him or not. He is close whether I'm experiencing that emotionally right now or not. If I fear God, if I am one of his children, if I've given my life to Christ, I can know that God is with me. In fact, he's, he's remembering everything. When I feel like I'm alone and nobody knows what I'm going through, he knows. That's the, the idea, the imagery of the book. It's not that God has a bad memory. It's just it's sort of in human terms. It's like he's writing down everything. He's seeing it all. He's, he's videotaping every moment of, of, of silent pain. He knows it. He'll watch it. He won't forget. And then I've always loved the image of God taking my tears and putting them in his bottle and like sticking that up on a shelf. Like he's, every tear gets captured. It doesn't just go away into the meaningless nothingness of the universe. God catches every one and he puts it on a shelf and he lives with it every day. And the fight for perspective is the fight to believe that that's true, even when I'm not feeling it, and say, God, you've been more generous to me, even by my pain. Give me the heart to believe and experience the truth of your grace and your mercy. Memorize these passages, recite them, pray them back to God a hundred times until you start to believe it. And until, like Mary, you can take God's promise and bank on it, even if you don't fully understand it. And then, when you get up the next day and you're right back to despair, you do it all over again. It's exhausting work. It is a fight for joy, but joy must be received. And as a church family, we can help each other in that fight as well. So joy comes from the full experience of God's mercy, which is for those who fear him, not for the self-sufficient. The fight for joy is a fight for perspective. It's leading our hearts to see the brokenness of our lives in light of who God is and of what he's done, to get beyond our immediate circumstances and see God and his involvement not only with us, but with everything else. And that leads us to the third and final point of Mary's praise hymn. Joy sees and is rooted in the big picture. Verses 54 and 55 back in Luke chapter 1. She concludes her praise poem with these lines. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I mentioned earlier how clear-eyed Mary was about what was going on in her life, how much she understood that this is not just an experience I'm having with God, but this is part of God's fulfilling a vast plan. She says he has been merciful to all of Israel. That's the entire nation of Israel. She realizes, as amazing as this is for me, this isn't about me. This is about God blessing his whole people. In fact, she takes us all the way back to what he spoke to Abraham. That's taking us clear back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promised Abraham, your descendants will outnumber the stars. That was a promise that there would be the Jewish people. But even more than that, he said, through your seed, a key descendant, a savior, the whole world, even non-Jewish people, will be blessed. Mary understands all of this, and she realizes this child I'm carrying is that seed God promised thousands of years ago in whom the entire world can find salvation. And do you see what that does to her joy? She's like, my word, this is not only God being way more gracious to me than what I deserve, which deepens her joy. It's not just this superficial, happy, turn on the lights, joy, joy, joy stuff. It's like, wow, God's been amazing to me. But then the perspective she has broadens it and expands it out. It's still very deep, but it goes way beyond her life. It goes to all of her people. It goes to all people. It goes to the entire world. And she's like, I'm a part of God, not only blessing me, but blessing everybody. Don't read this passage just about being 
as, as being just about Mary. She won't let us. This is Mary getting excited about a special encounter she had personally with an angel, a miracle she had personally experienced, and a son that she personally bore, birthed, mothered, and loved, but the joy wasn't just in those things. It wasn't just in God's blessing to her. It was in God fulfilling the promise that he made to the world through her. And friends, every time you experience and communicate the gospel of Jesus, you are the same conduit, albeit in a different way, of Jesus to the world. That can expand your joy far beyond the circumstances that we live with. Jesus was God in human flesh. God with us. That's Christmas. And he came to live the perfect life we should have lived but failed to. And then to die the sinner's death that we should have died but no longer have to because he's done it for us. All before we wanted him or asked for his help so that we can experience forgiveness from sins, adoption in God's family, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God to be with us in everything we deal with right now, and the promise of unbridled future joy free from mourning, crying, and pain. That's the Bible's message. Friends, if you have not confessed specific personal sin to God in your need for a Savior and received His gift of eternal life in Jesus, and his death on the cross in your place. I invite you to do that this Christmas time because no greater gift has ever been offered, but it must be received. It's not just enough to be a good person and go to church and assume God's going to cover it. He says, my son died for your sin. You must bank on that. I'd be delighted to talk with you after our service this morning. If you came to church with a Christian, ask them, what does Christmas joy mean to them? How has Jesus impacted their life? And do business with Jesus this Christmas season. And for many of us who have already made that commitment to Christ as our Lord and Savior, what might it look like for you to cling to joy, to fight for it if necessary, this Christmas? Because Christmas is our story. It's not just Mary's story. And this is our song of praise because God has been more merciful to us than we can imagine. And we can receive that mercy by recognizing and humbly coming to him to to receive it and understand that it isn't just about his mercy to us. It's about using us to accomplish a greater glory for the entire world. And friend, that is the basis of real joy this Christmas. And ask the worship team to come up as we pray and then sing songs of praise back to him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the blessed reality of joy at Christmas time. Not just a painted smile and not even just some of the things that we like. Uh, full tables, bright trees, family, friends, fun, all good things. But God, Christmas is about so much more. It's about your generosity to us. Actually, it's about so much more than your generosity to us. It is about your generosity to every single person from every tribe, tongue, language, ethnic background. Your mercy is for the world, for all those who will fear your name. I pray, Jesus, that you would change hearts that millions of men and women around this country, thousands of men and women right here in our city, and that even dozens of men and women right here in this room would experience a newfound joy in you this Christmas. Perhaps for the first time, as you would call men and women to repentance and faith, and perhaps for the thousandth time as we fight for joy because of your generosity to us. May that be a real experience so that we can worship you fully as a people of God for who you are from the heart. And these things we pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.